okay in your Bibles, everyone, the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew. And in just a moment, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, picking back up with the parable of the sower. Um, last week, we read the whole parable. I'm not going to do that this week. We read the parable and the bit in between. But um, what we're going to do this week is read the portion that uh, I intend to, to cover in this morning's message While you're turning there, Matthew chapter 13, I, I want to make sure that um, uh, we didn't have hard hearts last week um, or hard ears or something. Uh, do we remember who the sower is? The sower is, it's not rhetorical, the sower is God. The seed is the Word of God. The soil is us. Okay. Now, a little more unison perhaps. The sower is God. The seed is the Word. The soil is us. Okay. Uh, there are four soils. Which soil were we looking at last week? The path. And does anyone remember what the next two soils are? The rocky ground and thorns. And then, of course, there is good soil. For anyone who was hoping that we would move to that this week, that is actually next week. We have to deal with the rocky and the thorny soil first. So I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 13. We know that the sower has gone out and is sowing. And we're told that, verse 5, other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Go down uh, um, now to Jesus' interpretation. And we read... Verse 20, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet has no root in himself, but endures for a while. When tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. God who created this world can surely break up the hard soil of your heart. That hope does come only with turning to God and asking Him to soften your heart, and perhaps against every mental and emotional impulse seeking Him. But as you cry out to Him, as you seek Him, if you turn to Him, we are told He will heal, heal you. Of course, Jesus quoted the prophet Isaiah to that effect. And people wouldn't turn lest He heal them, but they should turn because He can heal them. 
Today, though, we're looking at rocky and thorny soils. And you might wonder, why have we categorized these differently? Uh, why, in an effort to challenge and equip you, have I categorized these separately from the path? Because aren't they all bad soils? They are, but I hope you see just from reading the parable but that they're in many ways quite different. Embedded planting and growth simply doesn't happen with the path. Jesus tells the story of the, the man going out and sowing and it, it hits, the, hits the path and it doesn't sink into the ground. Um, but it does when it's sown in the rocky and the, the thorny soils. Hands up, who, who does gardening? Does anyone, does anyone do any gardening? I know Luke does. I knew that hand would go up. Luke, you go out with your seeds or your plants, and do you just chuck them on the sidewalk? No. no. It has to go into the ground. And there may, there may be parts of the ground which are less suitable for growth, right? There may, the, the soil's less rich. It's less, less suitable for growth. But it, it, it's not received at all by the path. It is received by perhaps less than suitable soil at some degree. And that's what's going on in this story. The rocky and the thorny soil it is very much receiving the word, but responding to it nonetheless ineffectively. Those who are hard soil do not understand, do not believe, do not receive, and there is no fruit whatsoever. Those who are rocky or thorny soil, because remember we are the soil, they do respond, it would seem, at least for a while, and they understand at least in part, and they believe at some level, and they receive the word and its importance to some degree, and even produce some momentarily visible fruit, at least for a time. The path is about the hardness of your heart preventing any real, functional, visible response. The rocky and thorny soil is about how you let the hardness of your life destroy and distract you from continuing to grow after initial response to the Word. Do we see that distinction? The path is about responding to the Word. The rocky and thorny soils are more about how you respond to the world and the way that response ultimately overwhelms your response to the word. So it is about how you respond to the word, but there, there's a couple of other things that come first. You receive the word, but then when you let the hardness of your life destroy you and distract you, you may be rocky or thorny soil. There is a response. There is apparent growth. Verse 5, we read that, that, um, that there is this um, plant that grows up immediately. Do you see that? Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up. Verse 20 says, the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. So I guess this is about how, 
the first question we, we must ask is how do you respond to divine things? How do you respond to divine things? Now, if you don't respond, then you're the path. We've already established that. But if there is a response, then just at the beginning, that looks very good, doesn't it? The, the, the seed is sown, and there's good news. Immediately, these plants spring up. And, and Jesus interprets that in verse 20 as the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Similarly, there must be growth in the thorny soil as well. Although Jesus doesn't tell us as much, He implies it when He says, read that, other seeds fell among thorns, verse 7, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Well, there's something to grow up around, isn't there? There is something to choke. Thorns do not grow up and choke seeds. Thorns grow up and choke plants. And, and, and so these um, thorns grow up and, and choke plants. There has been some response, there has been some reception to the seed sown among the thorns. And what he says in verse 22 is clear. This is the one who hears the word. The, one so, uh, the, the, the thorny soil is the one who hears the word, but when there's that growth, stuff grows up and chokes it out. I mean, how could you not, let's just leave it at that first level, though, of response. How could you not respond to divine things? You know, it's only if you have a very hard heart. When you hear that, that there is a God who created the heavens and the earth, and you actually pause to think about that, and if you, if, if you, you know, for a moment, get away from all of the noise and all of the shouting and all of the anger and the bickering and all, all of the things that people say for why God doesn't exist, you know, we don't have to say that certain other things don't exist or are not real. But for as long as there have been people, there has been a belief in God, in the divine, just at that, at that level. Even if it's not the God of the Bible, there has been a belief that there is a creator or creators that is established across cultures. And regardless of what um, the, the very popular spirit of you know, our own secularist society's age is, atheism remains very much in the minority of global belief and worldview. Now, even more so when we stretch it out all across history. Why? Because the Bible tells us that God has engraved eternity on our hearts. That, that, that God has planted stuff within us so that we might seek Him and find Him. The Apostle Paul talks about groping our way through the dark that we might find Him. And He says He's not, he's not far from any of us. And there are, there are people who are finding their way. They're struggling and they, they, they believe in a God or gods or a, a creator or a higher power or something or other, but they're seeking because they have come. Increasingly, people are coming to believe that they can no longer hold the belief there is no God as tenable or hopeful, or helpful in any way. God exists, the Scriptures tell us, and He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. And it, that is the essence of faith. Faith 
is the belief that God exists and that He rewards those who diligently seek Him. And so we seek Him. And faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So um, we, we, we understand that God is invisible, but He has made a visible world, and He has given us visible words, and He has shown Himself historically in the physical person and work of Jesus Christ. When you hear that message and you hear about God loved a world that rebelled against Him, that sinned against Him, a hateful, evil, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless world, and He loved that world and gave His Son, the Lord Jesus, to die for us, that we might, by believing in Him, be saved and have justice satisfied, wrath turned away, someone else substituted in our place to die for us in our stead so that we might be right with God, that's good news. How could you not respond to that? And so the seed goes out and there's an immediate response on the rocky soil. It grows up immediately. And in the thorny soil there is growth. It doesn't say how quickly it happens, but there is growth. Because divine things are precious things, beautiful things, treasured things. Powerful things. How can we not respond? Now, of course, we, we even see it in the life of Jesus. And Jesus is saying, Come to me, you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Come to me. And weary people, tired people, exhausted people, dissatisfied people come to Him. Because that's good news. When, when, when He says that, that He has sent the rich away hungry and He has filled the poor with good things, it's not so great news for those who are captivated by riches, but it's very good news for those who are poor and empty. And so we come to Jesus and, we, and we're like, this is good news. How could we not? He's the Savior. He's the Christ. How do you respond to divine things? Sadly, in this parable, not all is well. I find uh, the two elements of the parable ultimately quite terrifying, in fact. And I, they should prompt you to serious reflection and self-examination. The question we must ask is not only how do you respond to divine things, but also how do you respond to destructive things? And that's where the story takes a bit of a dark turn. The seed is sown on rocky soil. Jesus is King. He's the Christ. He's the Anointed One of God. He's the Messiah. He's, he's the, the, the Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of His kingdom, there shall be no end. And it's just good news. And it's all the great stuff that we sing about and we hear about at Christmas time. And you'll remember um, we, we, we had you know, the street filled with, with, with people. There were, you know, I was told by a neighbor, over 70 people 
who, who were present for that, that evening. And we sing about Jesus and we read scriptures about Jesus and we, everyone's saying, oh, this is, this is good news because what better news is there in the wake of, of two years of just soul-crushing sickness and um, restrictions and all of that to get out in the street and sing our hearts out and, and read stories of good news. It's great. But the vast majority of them we've, we've not seen since. Some of whom even would say, I, I believe what we sang. I believe what we read. You know, isn't it good that, that we can gather and all of the struggle, struggles and strife around us, this may be you today, you, know, you, you, you open the, um, the news feed or the newspaper or whatever your media choice is if you choose to consume such, and, and you're like, well, you know, today it's just World War III is about to break out or something. Russia's invading Ukraine, which had happened eight years ago anyway, but we're now actually, it, it, it feels closer and more relevant to the, the world, and there's a lot of stuff that people are all, and it's, it's nice to come to a place where, where we can remember Jesus is king, hmm. that he's sovereign, that, that the nations rage and the people's plot in vain. That's good. But then you leave, and it's not that you forget. It's not that you don't believe that. It's just that your life doesn't really live that out. Am I making sense? How do you respond to destructive things? How do you respond to sickness? How do you respond to um, restriction? How do you respond to death? How do you respond to war? How do you respond to all of the shouting of an angry world around you? Well, I think I, 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 mean, I, I, think I respond okay. Um, I, I, how do you respond when they're shouting at you? And they're shouting at you not because of, of some subcultural preference or niche belief but they're shouting at you because you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you love the Word of God and you are committed to following Jesus and obeying Him. They are shouting at you because you are a Christian. What happens then? On um, Tuesday night at the men's Bible study, I was, I was um, referencing a, a film called Silence, uh, where, which is uh, a story of basically um, Roman Catholic priests going to find a man who's disowned their faith or whatever. And you know me, I preach this five-week series on the five solas. I'm totally Protestant. But... It's a very interesting story, and there's a lot of lessons from that film, not least when they, they um, in Japan, historically accurate, they would take an image of Jesus Christ, and they would place it on the ground, and you were supposed to spit on it and stamp on it, and um, um, 
uh, thereby you showed that you were rejecting Jesus, that you were rejecting the Christian faith. And so they, um, they would do this, and you, know, you have people who, who did it and continued to try and maintain some sort of secret Christianity. And you had some who just laid low, and then you had some who didn't do it and paid the price, including, in the film, some people that you thought might waver. And yet they stand strong. And those that you think are stronger end up being the ones who waver. And uh, there's this one character who keeps surfacing throughout. And the first time I was like, oh, this, this guy's annoying. And the second time I, I, I was like, this is really, you know. The third time I was like, oh, him again? And multiple times. I lost count, you know, how many times this guy just keeps popping up. And he's just this really wormy individual who is always trying to back away when it counts, when it matters. Why? Because his life is at stake. And it's very easy to say what you would do, hypothetically, when people are upset with you for your faith when they aren't upset with you. It's very easy to give the hypothetical of, I, you know, I would hold my convictions and I would speak my mind and I would say it like it is and I, I, I would be a martyr for Jesus if it came to it. You know, unfortunately, the rocky soil is more rocky than soil. This co contributes both to its immediate response, yes, but also to its eventual decline. The, the text reads that they grow up, but the sun rises up, and its heat scorches them, and they wither away. Jesus says that, that these are those who receive the word with joy, but do not really grow roots. They endure for a while, but when they suffer on account of the word, they fall away. Perhaps they endured other forms of suffering because, because they had the word to go to for comfort. So don't make that a, a sort of a measure of your faithfulness. Oh, I've been through hard times before. And, you know, you might have gone to the word for comfort and you felt safe there. But what if it is the word that you previously went to for comfort that you are suffering for? And you find the word that you go to for comfort is incriminating. When your suffering is directly linked to your relationship to the Word of God and what you believe and why you believe it, do you withdraw or reject God's Word? Do you wither? And, and why? Because although these people impulsively receive the Word of God, they do not have deep-seated convictions. The seed lands on the surface. It lands on the surface and there's enough soil for it to grow, but not to take root. The ground doesn't take it into heart. You don't take the Word of God into heart. You don't take the message of the kingdom into heart. It lands on the surface because you're like, it's good news, it's nice, I like it, it encourages me, it gets me through the day, it helps or whatever. And then when it really gets hot, it goes away. At best, this means that you stumble. Some translations might have a footnote. I don't know if you can look at yours. It might say, instead of fall away, it says, or stumble. 
uh, some talk about offense or being offended, but it's, uh, it's using the old English way of like suffering comes and, and you were offended by the suffering, but it's not offended in the sense that makes you defensive. It's offense in the sense of, you know, I'm just going to step away. Luke uses a different word altogether, a word that means um, in, in, in uh, his account of Jesus' telling of the parable on another occasion, um, uh, withdraw oneself, to step back, to withdraw and stand aloof. I think it's possible for this to be a temporary posture. I think it is possible for a person to momentarily, when uh, the, the going gets tough when it gets hot, when they're suffering, to step back, to withdraw and stand aloof. Certainly, we, we read examples of this in Christian history. Some are more prolonged than others. I was reading just last night about a man who um, was um, imprisoned in Aylesbury. Uh, ten men and two women imprisoned in Aylesbury in the um, 16... Um, 70s, I think it was. They were a part of a Baptist church. They had gathered for worship. And they were arrested and imprisoned during the reign of King James II. And not only were they arrested and imprisoned, but the local government gave them the death penalty. That's something that had not been done for many, many decades. In fact, by that point in this country, you were not supposed to kill people for what they believed, which is very nice and good, isn't it? But um, the local government referred to a, a, a rule, a law from the days of Queen Elizabeth I, and imposed that upon this gathering of Baptist believers and charged them with death. You will die. Why? For meeting in a room just very, not unlike this one, Gathering to worship, to sing, to pray, to read the Word of God. Death. They were put in prison. While they were in prison, their homes were raided. Their belongings destroyed. Their families left desolate. One of the men recanted everything that he believed. And he, he was released from the prison, and he went home. When he got home, he was so distressed, so upset in his soul, that we're told that the distress in his soul was greater than the distress he had related to his family and the distress he had related to his prospective death. So he went back, unrecanted, and was subsequently rearrested and recharged with the death penalty. An intervention by the um, uh, Baptist pastor William Kiffin in London, who personally knew the king, uh, saved these people's lives. The king didn't know anything about it, and although he was not at all friendly to what they believed, he sent an immediate um, uh, note that they were supposed to be freed and all charges dropped. But there's a story therein. Momentarily, there are rocky places in our lives. And the way we respond to those long-term matters. 
Be patient with people that you see wavering in the moment. Their story is not over yet. Be encouraging. Be kind. Be prayerful. Be patient. Seek to win them back. And not least by your own testimony. I mean, seriously, imagine this man getting home. One wonders what his faithful wife and children had to say about what he had done. One wonders what he thought when he expected his prison mates to follow him. And he looked back and he saw nine men and two women who were ready to die for their faith. So he went back. These are things that we must um, take seriously. We must not be proud. We, we must not be arrogant. Um, at worst case, while I'm trying to comfort some of you who may have been there and done that, or some of you who may be there and do that, I also want to be very clear that at worst case, and I believe the normal interpretation of this passage is referring to apostasy where there is a complete falling away. Someone has manifested surface level faith or belief in the gospel of the kingdom of God, but they withdraw. They completely reject what they once professed and even proclaimed to believe. It is not something to take lightly. This past week, um, we, I, I saw a video of um, uh, a... Christian music artist who was um, uh, for 30 years very active not only in uh, his own creative art but also in um, urban apologetics and in teaching. This man um, completely renounced the faith in the video. Completely said, you know, that he's re rejecting the faith that he once proclaimed. He says, you know, I, I studied at Bible College. I studied at Westminster Theological Seminary. I, uh, I knew all of the arguments. And then six, seven years ago, 2014 or so, he, he, he decided he was going to, and this is when I knew something was wrong. He said, I'm going, I'm going to um, uh, live in God's world for a while instead of God's word. Sounds very clever and profound. And at the same time, very foolish. I'm going to live in God's wor world, not in His Word for a while, and I'm going to learn from His world. So he, he detached himself from the Word of God until quite recently, and it's when a, a Christian said, when are you going to get back into the Word? You've been doing this thing with the world for a while, and maybe it's beginning to show. And, and so he said he started reading the Word again, and he couldn't connect anymore. Why do you think? Things got difficult. The heat was on. And he didn't have roots. The soil wasn't, wasn't receiving the Word. It was receiving the world. And so when difficulty came, the plant that was there withered and died. Be warned, please. There, there, there are many like this in Scripture. 
Think about it. Whether they're momentary or permanent, that's not for me to say. But there are crowds who followed Jesus but left Him when He didn't give them what they wanted or when He didn't do what they expected. There are crowds who said, Hosanna, only for a few days later to say, crucify Him. The, the, the men that um, are studying through 2 Timothy on Tuesday nights, they'll eventually meet someone named Demas. Demas was a close friend and fellow worker of the Apostle Paul. We are told that he abandoned Paul. Why? Because he was in love with this present world. In other words, it was no longer safe. If it ever was to be with Paul, Paul is a man waiting execution because of his dogged commitment to pre preaching Jesus Christ. And now he's in prison awaiting execution. The heat is too hot. And so Demas, Demas is like, this is getting a bit oppressive. I want to live. And I want to live so much that I'm prepared to leave my friend. And the implication is that he not only left his friend, but he left the things that kept his friend in prison. The heat was too hot, the tribulation too trying, the persecution too oppressive. And although we cannot say with final certainty what the rest of Demas's story may have been, in the moment Paul was writing, it was clear that Demas's love for self-preservation outweighed his love for Savior proclamation. And actually, instead of preserving him, his, his life and enduring, it seems very much that he is one of these who fell away. And I cannot help but wonder, lest we read that story self-righteously, if faced with the same circumstances, would I? And I cannot help but ask, would you? It's those who answer with the strongest confidence, I will never leave you or forsake you, that I'm actually most concerned about. Because pride goes before the fall. And the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. It's those who are aware of some potential weakness that I think maybe they're better soil. So, how do you respond to destructive things? Finally, how do you respond to distracting things? Some seed fell among thorns. There seems to be fruit. The soil receives it. The Word of God begins to bear fruit. But that fruit is far too quickly choked out. By what? He calls it the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. Basically, it's the things you worry about and the things that you want, essentially. The things you worry about and the things that you want conspire together to choke out the fruit that your soil is bearing. They might not necessarily be bad things. Some of them may in fact be good things. Some of them may be necessary things. But you pursue those things instead of or more enthusiastically and urgently than the kingdom of God. Later in the same chapter, Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven being like a man who finds treasure buried in a field. He... Um, reburies it, he then sells all that he has, and he buys the field. What's not told is what people must have thought when he was selling all that he had. He's going around selling the things that he has 
to buy this field. He knows what's in the field. Jesus doesn't get into the ethics of, you know, oh, if I find a treasure in a field, do I do the same? He doesn't talk about that. It's a story. It's just a parable. He's not endorsing, you know, necessarily that kind of thing. But the man reburies the treasure, goes about all of this, and then he's, um, um, he's purchasing the field. People must have thought he was crazy. Why is he selling this? What does he have? What, how does he... Why would he do that for this field? Because the treasure that was buried in the field was of infinitely greater value than everything else that he possessed. There was no asterisk with this investment, you know, that, that you may lose capital. He knew it was a sure thing. And no, not a sure thing like your forex friends sometimes come up with or, or whatever. Oh, uh, or, or your, you know, your, your various um, pyramid scheme people, you know. Oh, have you thought about um, this is an absolute certainty. The treasure is there. He's seen it. He's handled it. He's reburied it. And he's going to buy that field. Similarly, there's the story of a pearl merchant who finds one priceless pearl of immense value, sells everything he has to purchase it. In other words, nothing is more valuable than the kingdom of heaven. Nothing is more valuable than that which is drawn near to us in Jesus Christ. Nothing that we can think, nothing that we can desire, nothing that we can dream about, nothing that we can want, nothing that we can seek, Nothing matters more than the good news of Jesus Christ the King. Can we agree with that? Far too many, perhaps, perhaps even some here today, are, um, are more likely to lay Jesus Christ, His Word, His church, and what it means for their life aside before other things. And again, even good and important things become bad things when they're choking out the Word. Has education ever choked out the Word? Schooling? Exams? Jobs and career? Housing? Transportation? Relationships? Investments, life admin, health and well-being, recreational pursuits, or any of those bad things. In fact, all of those are good things, and all of them would be a part of a healthy, balanced life. But they become bad things when they choke out the Word of God. When you're, you're giving yourself to a carnal life, a worldly life, without reference to God and His Word and to His kingdom. Jesus tells a, a, a story in Luke's Gospel about a feast to which many were invited. The Word goes out and the feast is ready. The invited guests begin to send their apologies. They don't sound unlike the reasons even Christians give for their absence from church gatherings or various um, opportunities for service. I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please excuse me. I've bought some oxen to plow my field with and I'm going to try them out. Please excuse me. 
And then there's the guy who doesn't even say, please excuse me. All he says is, I just got married, so I can't be there. You know, my pastoral response is normally, bring your wife, you know, or your husband, or whichever the case may be. It was a, you know, uh, can be a plus one invitation. <laughs> People choose to miss out on the blessing God has prepared for them because of the things with which they have burdened themselves, much of it connected to the pursuit of their comfort, the lifestyle they desire, and the love of wealth and riches. You know, the better these things are, the more distracting they can be. So sometimes people are like, I'm seeking this, but the better they get at that, or the more they enjoy that, the more it pulls them away from God and His Word. I'm not wishing anything bad on anybody. What I am saying and encouraging you to is to rightly prioritize. These things ought not choke out the Word of God, but if they do, you may be thorny soil. You know, then there are the cares that you make for yourself or that you let get to you in ways that again choke out the Word. This is when things go wrong with the things I just list listed. So you don't pass the exam. So you respond, how? by letting that get to you in a way that is ultimately destructive, not just distracting. You aren't hired. You can't be hired. You won't be hired. You lose your job. You have no vision, initiative, or prospects for a career. You can't afford to rent or to buy, or you're, you, you, you could, but you just struggle to find the right place with the right motives and the right plan. Um, your car is breaking down. Your relationships are broken down. Your investments are making consistent losses. Life admin is stacking up undealt with. Your health is suffering. And, and what even are recreational pursuits anyway? People let the hardness, again, real or perceived, the hardness of their life with all of its complexities, swallow up the reception of the message of the kingdom. Things that are from without and things that are from within choke out how you receive the Word of God. Should this be weaponized against brothers and sisters who are legitimately struggling and feeling overwhelmed or discouraged? Absolutely not. Nor is this about denying the reality of some of those challenges or scoffing at the reality of some of the challenges that I just listed because they are very real and they are very painful and they are extremely distracting at times. It is entirely about, however, some hear God's word but ultimately let the noise of their life drown it all out. As Luke records this same parable, as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures. And so they do not mature. At best then, these are people who do not mature, who do not grow up, but remain in spiritual infancy. And we can thank God that they are in something, you know, some form of spiritual existence, but you know, there's something very unwell about a perpetual infant. 
At worst, these are those who, not unlike the first group, hear and may respond again at a superficial level, but the soil of their heart was always more hospitable to the world's thorns than to heaven's throne. On Wednesday, I was given at least three very visible illustrations of rocky, thorny soil. Wednesday morning, I conducted a funeral. It was not a very easy funeral or a pleasant funeral. It was a man who, so far as I am aware, died without help in life, hope in death, or any sign of redemption. His family were angry, and rightly so, with him. His friends were angry with the family for being angry, but those friends were sometimes enablers of his sins and addictions. It was a very messy situation. I read from Psalm 90, teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. I actually read the whole psalm, which talks about how um, uh, we die because we are sinners, and we die because of God's justice. But there is hope for those who find wisdom as they seek God. So we, we commit the soul of the one who has died into the hands of the Lord who does everything right, but we ourselves are still alive Will we learn wisdom. And I don't know, but I repeatedly talked with the man who has passed. I pulled him out of the street. I pulled him out of bushes, drunk, wasting away. I sat with him in muck, and shared the gospel with him many times, spoke with him personally, pastorally, pleadingly. The last time I spoke with him was over the phone. I hadn't seen him for a while, so I called him. He couldn't get out. Everything was breaking down. Even in cold weather, he normally would be sat laying on the ground, but this time for a while he had not been. He couldn't move. So he was sat, sedentary, at home, watching the television. And he wouldn't turn the volume down to understand me properly. I could hear the TV more than I could hear him. And I couldn't even hear myself talking sometimes when I was trying to talk on the phone. And I wasn't even in the room with him. But that was a parable of his life. He couldn't hear or wouldn't hear because of all of the noise. He came here for a month or more, sobered up, was here, present, not only himself, but actively brought, in the words of one of those friends, dragged two or three other people with him and listened and showed appreciation until, as I was preaching through 1 Corinthians, I got to the chapter on marriage and divorce. And um, he had been an abusive man, but nonetheless played the victim, abandoned his wife and children. And he didn't like what I had to say because he thought, even though I didn't know that story, he thought I was talking about him. The Holy Spirit Definitely was. 
He never came into this room again. Rocky soil, thorny soil, fruit, choked out, drowned out. I come back, I had a meeting. Meeting got canceled. I have another meeting. Person was supposed to be doing some work. They weren't there. So I'm just finding myself getting increasingly frustrated as I'm, I'm being moved about. And, but through that being moved about, I run into a man who's a crack addict. He's been in this room. He's attended Bible studies. He's attended services. Not seen him in a while. He's not looking so great. Yes, he's back on crack. What's your plan? I'm going to turn myself in. Just a few weeks. I get my, I get my, um, my benefits, so I'll have some spending money, but then I'm turning myself in because I violated my probation. And they're looking for me, and I know they're looking for me, but I keep evading them, but now I'm going to turn myself in, and I'm going to get in prison because... I. I can't, I can't think out here. I can't. My friends keep coming along with the crack, and I keep bumping into people from my life who keep bringing me, dragging me back into that. But in prison, I'm safe, and there they have Bible courses. So he's turning, he's turning himself into prison so he can have space to set his life in order and hopefully attend Bible courses. At least he has some self-awareness about the rockiness and the thorniness of his life. I then sit in the um, pret on the high road, and I opened my Bible as I was waiting for another meeting, and I, I was working through uh, 2 Corinthians. We're going to be preaching through 2 Corinthians um, as a series soon, and so I'm just, I'm like, I'm going to read through the whole book in one go. I made it to chapter 2. Someone looks over my shoulder. Is that a Bible? Well, yes, it is. Are you kidding? I, I never see people reading a Bible in Pret-a-Manger in Woodgrain. Well, if you stuck around more, you would regularly see me in here with, with my Bible. Are you, are, are you a follower of Jesus? No, no. He walks on. And then he comes back, and he kept talking to me. And he came back, so I'm like, sit down, sit down. I'm like, I think it's providential. I wasn't supposed to be here at this time. But I'm here. He said, I like that word providence. And then he started schooling me in providence. And he, he, he beautifully, beautifully and biblically talked about the providence of God and the sovereignty of God and God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And he was so helpfully articulate that I, I, I was amazed and very confused. You don't follow Christ. No, I don't. So what happened? <laughs> because you just told me something that, that they couldn't say as clearly or as deeply at seminary level. A pastor's son. He comes to... Um, um, why did people make that sound when I said pastor's son? Well, I'm a pastor's son, you know. Not all bad. My dad was a pastor's son. He's a good man, you know. Uh, but pastor's son, rebelling. Rebelling very hard. 
Loves R.C. Sproul. Still does. Watched all his stuff. Watched a lot of apologetic stuff online. Was big into Alpha and Omega Ministries and stuff like that. And I, 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 he, he knew it. I'll tell you, the man reeked of arrogance. All of it was in his head. But he kept talking about how you know, he watched this and he listens to that and he was a part of that church and that church has ties with John MacArthur and I'm like all of this, all of it's linked up, yeah? And then I said, so please tell me what, what happened. Well, I realized it was all head knowledge. Nothing from above. Nothing from above. And he said it without any fear. He said it without any concern. All head knowledge, nothing from above. And I said, what's your problem? Pornography and gambling. I watch porn and I like it. I gamble and I like it. And I keep doing it. And I rob and I steal. And I take loans from people that I don't return. And I, I, I like it. I don't mind. I started falling out with people at my church because of it. I met with the elders, and I just told them matter-of-factly what I'm doing and what I'm about. And, 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 and they realized that there's a serious problem, and they thought, well, maybe I was just going through a phase. But no, I'm not going through a phase. This is me. This is who I am. And so I left. And I won't get back involved because there's nothing from above. And I'm like, but you do believe what you've heard. Yeah, I believe it. I think it's true. Terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. Is there hope for such as these? I, I, I've gone easy on you. I've given you stories about people you don't know. Is there hope for such as us? Or will we let the noise, will we let our addictions, will we let our sins, will we let our cares, our desires, our cravings, our burdens choke everything we know and believe to be true out? With man, this is impossible. Someone asked, I think it was Jacob, we met up later that, that day actually, and I, I um, told him, because my heart was heavy for them. And uh, you asked, brother, how, you know, how do you respond? I, I kind of was at a loss. Because what do you tell a man who knows everything? What do you tell a man when you, you ask him, have you sought help? And he scoffs in your face and says, it wouldn't do any good. What do you do to someone who has embraced the world's thorns and its stones? With man, this is impossible. With God, nothing is impossible. After all, in Luke's telling of this parable, the chapter is not over until Jesus has delivered a demon-possessed man who could not be successfully chained and was living like an animal naked among tombs. Same chapter as the parable of the sower in Luke's gospel. 
The next thing we know, same chapter, he's healing a woman who had been hemorrhaging for 12 years, and he's raising a girl from the dead. Jesus can do all things. He can remove the stones and the thorns from our lives, and he can make us good soil. That's not to say there aren't thorns about. That's not to say there aren't stones there. That's not to say that the sun of suffering beats down on us from time to time. But we're good soil that's growing a good crop. When Jesus acts, nothing can stop Him. Your starting place does not have to be your stopping place. Your failure need not be final. When Jesus told of His betrayal, His forthcoming betrayal, um, by a disciple and His abandonment by all other disciples who would withdraw and stand aloof, who would fall away, one of the disciples, whose name incidentally means rock, Peter, said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Though everyone else abandon you, I will not. Things got a bit hot. And the same night he said that, he denied Jesus, even knowing Jesus, just as a person, as a friend, three times. God can make rocky, thorny soil pure. He can take soil that once rejected the message of the kingdom, and that soil can be a major part in advancing the kingdom. Do we believe that? Do we trust that? Then let's call out to Him. Lord God, help us. May we not be rocky soil. May we not be thorny soil. There are stones. There is sun. There are thorns. There are all sorts of things that threaten to destroy us and distract us from receiving the message of the kingdom, which is Your Word. I pray against these things in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, may these things not wither us. May they not choke us out. May we trust in Jesus Christ and follow Him. May we receive the message of the kingdom. May it be rooted deep within us in good soil. And may it produce a good crop. Father, Forgive us for the stony places in our lives. Forgive us for the thorny places in our lives. Forgive us when we have been stones and thorns to other brothers and sisters. Forgive us for letting other things and people and places and stuff become stones and sun and thorns and all of that to us. Lord, we pray that in your mercy and grace, you would help us to be rooted and grounded in the good news that Jesus is the Christ the eternal King. Amen.